Good afternoon. Welcome back. I'm really honored to moderate uh, this session about uh, digitalization and technolo technological evolution, or better, revolution as suggested by its title. We'll be able to listen to the valuable opinion of some of the protagonists from different areas of the shipping industry. Let me introduce them. Mr. Mark Cameron, Executive Vice President and CEO at Ardmore Shipping. Alexandra Chupateras, Executive Vice President, Business Development Dorian, LPG. Stephen McFarlane, uh, CIO, Big Group. Olaf Norton, CEO, Foam Group. And Mark O'Neill, President of Columbia Ship Management. During the pandemic, uh, technology has proved its potential to avoid or minimize business disruption in several sectors like never before. The COVID-19 outbreak put a lot of emphasis on technology, enabling remote activities such as inspections, surveys, audits, and verifications of all kinds. This was an ongoing trend pre-COVID crisis, but it has now gained greater focus. In the future, ships will be largely covered by autonomous processes, and, uh, and this push for more and more automation on board will be even more accelerated. Online monitoring will be facilitated by the increased ship's connectivity and hopefully by the reduction of the data transmission costs. Dear speakers, we are looking forward to understanding what was your company's reactions and solutions to assure, for example, resilience in your supply chain, maintenance of operation, and what are the technologies that have supported you most in the last months. And in general, which you think will be the next game changers for the shipping and maritime business. Let me start with, uh, with Alex. Alex, in which areas of maritime operation do you see the deployment of big data and data processing techniques could be a real game changer? In particular, do you think shipping could be cross-fertilized by other industry sectors where application of such technology is more mature? Thank you, Paolo, and I'm delighted to be speaking at Capital Link in this uh, seminar. Uh, I think that um, leading up to this year, there was a, a lot of focus on uh, big data and analytics around speed and consumption, specifically with the changes in the IMO regulations in terms of uh, making savings regarding differences in fuel quality. For the future, uh, I see a, a lot of focus also on safety and navigation. Uh, Shell, for example, uh, pioneered something called high-low, high-frequency, um, high-impact, high low-frequency, where companies share data between each other anonymously to help improve, um, help predict incidents, to look at trends, to predict an incident before it, it happens to stop it. So I think uh, if you take, for example, some the New York Police Department, they've been using uh, predictive statistics in terms of where to deploy uh, police officers to stop crimes from happening. I think that shipping has historically been uh, laggard and we're embracing these technologies, not just to save costs on fuel, but to improve uh, safety and navigation on board. Good. That is a good point. That's very interesting. Mark O'Neill, um, I would like also you to, to give us uh, some, uh, some hint on what your company, that is a very important management company, is doing. But also, since you are a maritime lawyer, also to tell us something about what you think about these uh, data. They are, they are considered so valuable. They are considered like the, the new currency. But uh, sometimes we are also concerned about how to address the data ownership, uh, their, their increased security challenges. and. Uh, what about data ownerships and where do you see the most critical situations in that sector? Hi, hi everybody. Uh, delighted to be part of Capital Link's 
conference. I think what are we doing as as Columbia in relation to digitalization and um, uh, technology? I think probably uh, about a year and a half ago we were uh, certainly on the digital wave, if not ahead of the digital wave, insofar as we set up and invested in uh, extensively our performance optimization control room. We were always of the opinion that uh, digitalization is just the means and optimization is actually the end. What people actually do with the digitalization is, is, is what matters. You can uh, digitalize everything, but you don't need to digitalize everything. You just need to digitalize th those parts of your business that uh, are actually worth digitalizing and most importantly, what the client actually needs. So with the, with the performance optimization control room, we felt we had got it right for our clients and uh, we were we were on the right position on the digital wave. Then COVID-19 hit us and, and, and hit us all. And I was thinking before this conference of the appropriate analogy uh, to make, and it was rather like um, the, the, the proverb, uh, you know, dragging, dragging the proverbial horse to the water and really sticking its head in the trough and making it drink from the, the digitalization trough. Or, or as Nicholas said, just before we, before we started this, uh, he took a crash course in, in, in IT uh, over the last few months. I think COVID-19 caused the, the digitalization asteroid uh, to hit planet Earth, and and all of the dinosaurs were wiped out in one fell swoop. You know, we all of our businesses have been dragged kicking and screaming into the digital age, and you know we find platforms like this no longer intimidating and quite quite the the, the norm. Probably all of us on this platform, we've had four or five of these uh, in any single day. So uh, our businesses have been radically transformed, and and digitalization is with us whether we like it or not. Now, as far as data is concerned of course all of this digitalization is producing huge amounts of, uh, of data and and again like my initial comment with digitalization we've got to be absolutely certain what data we need and harvest that data otherwise we will just spend our time chasing our tails and trying to harvest everything with no measurable results or, or benefits from that. So I think with regard to the data that is produced, it has to be relevant. Uh, it has to be harvested in an economical way. There's absolutely no point in, in employing an army of uh, data processes and harvesters when actually you're trying to use digitalization to economize to achieve those economies of scale uh, and uh, of course we have to protect the data there's no point in in me trying to sell to clients our performance optimization control room if those clients are going to have concerns about the confidentiality of their data which they don't need to have concerns it's, it's all entirely confidential so the very same issues that apply to personal data will apply to commercial data as well and uh, of course there's huge value in this data by various organizations wanting to harvest it for their own means and of course it, it's confidential to clients um, so relevance of data uh, the, the methodology of harvesting that data and uh, uh, protecting the confidentiality of that data is very very important but you know, it is upon us now. So those of us who may have had quandaries about digitalization uh, as to when they get involved in that process before COVID-19, that, that is over. And, and if you're not up to your neck in it and, and using it and familiar with it, then uh, you, you'll probably find you've been left behind. Yes, I fully agree. Mark Cameron, in some recent interviews, you seem to, to cast a a little shadow on the enthusiastic approach to the digital race uh, taking place among your peers. 
Has the current COVID emergency made you change your mind, uh, at least partially, and in which ways? Yeah, thanks, Paolo. And uh, thanks also, Capital Link, for the, the opportunity. I think in expressing a balanced view around digitalization um, and the, particularly the euphoria around it, it doesn't make you anti-technology. And um, what it is is perhaps some of the experience of the past because, you know, to me, digitalization isn't as new as many people make it out to be. I agree with a lot of what Mark has said there. And I think there's some very, very valid points that he's raised. If I use an example of what I think is a great platform for, for trying to digitalize information, I'd use Q88. I think Q88 takes data in and it puts it out into a hundred different formats or even more that, that clients want. But that's still a very simple input level on board the ship. And the only real people they're trying to help here are the guys on board the ship who are sick and tired of entering in LOA, LBP, and all that basic data time after time after time. Why is it that we're talking about what COVID's done for us, but we're still all sitting with four or at least four noon reports being generated on ships, very often manually plugged in by the same people with the same information presented in different formats. So I think we, we have to look at uh, digitalization as a way to try to help ship staff to overcome some of this time-wasting, uh, error-inducing um, sort of information format that is just so repetitive. Um, I think if you are a chief mate on board a 24,000 TEU container ship, you absolutely need digitalization to help you load that ship. Now we run tankers. Um, our our uh, discharge and loading sequences on tankers are very manual. You know, we're not going to necessarily be digitalizing that part of the process. Yes, we have tank soundings. Yes, we have great um, uh, sounding, soundings in our tanks and readings, but we still need the people on board. We still need the people to be able to feel, to touch, to sense and smell. Um, I think if you look around the world at the amount of data that is required, data breeds data. And if you look at port clearances that are required in different parts of the world, Again, it's an insane amount of information that's being pushed around. So I think, you know, we've got to tone it down a bit to practical levels to say consistency matters in the outputs that people want and the, the actual genuine request for relevant information is very important. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about big data, I've always made the point that perhaps hasn't really been understood that little data for me is what values data in the hands of the people who can actually do something about it, not in that army of, of analysts sitting back in an office trying to discover a trend three months later. That's of no use to me. Data in the hands of the guys who can make a difference are generally the bridge team or the engineers on board the ship. Start with trying to make their lives a little bit better and a little bit easier, and we can really start to reap the benefits of it. Another criticism I have is that when you buy a secondhand ship, you lose all of that data. It's not transferred. Technical managers will not let data move from one owner to another. And I think it's time we change that. Because if we really talk about the wealth of data, it has to be part of a transaction when you buy and sell a ship. And this outdated approach towards, you know, the risk of transferring databases of, of um, maintenance is just silly. Um, so I would also say that in terms of technology, the, the, the playground or the test ground for uh, technology is not on board the ships in real life. 
Um, very often now we get a lot of prototypes that come out that don't have proper um, testing in an environment that makes it safe to do so. Um, so I think, yes, we are pro-technology. Yes, we are pro-digitalization. But let's remember who it's there to serve in the first place. Uh, and from there, see what benefits we can get. That's a good point. So not big data, but as you said, little data at the service of uh, the operators at the end, the people on board. Olaf, uh, many corporates claim they are adopting strategies to accelerate innovation and incubate less mature technologies, such as collaboration with technology partners and startups. Your company is based in Singapore, a very lively hub mm. in this regard. I'd like to know how do you design your company's innovation strategy? How do you choose where to address your investments in new technologies? Yeah. Um, Paolo, thank you. Thank you for the question and, and thank you to Capital Link for having us on, 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 on the stage, so to speak. Um, you know, um, I think leaning a little bit back was talked about the, when we look at the, the strategy and we look at innovation as, an, as a complement of what shapes the strategy moving forward, not only for today, but for the, for the years to come. And I think if we're looking at the, how we overcome part of the challenge during lockdown, it's, it's not because of technology we invented now and here, it was technology that was available. So you need to always have a forward-looking time, you know, where are we, where, what do you want to do? Uh, and so our focus and most of our focus is actually on, on um, using existing technology to look for improvements, you know, basically an incremental innovation. We spend time on disruptive te technology as well, but most is on the improvement part because we have a quest for improvement. You know, we want to pursue improvement as we move along, step by step. And, and there is no such single business that actually possess all the expertise and have all the solution. So we need to be active in seeking out uh, partners. You can find where are they and who are they and all that. And um, the fact that you're lucky to be in a place, in a live place and hub like Singapore with, you know, it's a, it's a great startup in Asia and in the world as well where you have this expertise, where you have the network with global connectivity, you have um, access to, 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 um, to top talents, to research organization. There is a multiple of opportunity to co-invent um, co together with partners, including government agencies and multiple organizations, and multiple, multinational organizations. So, you know, and as an example, we spent time with the National University of Singapore. They have resources we don't have enough intention to have. So we go and seek where they are, the academia. We are actively involved and spend time with tech ventures like the, those linked to PS71 here in Singapore. We look for accelerators where we find startups looking at stuff that we don't look at. Looking at those who can actually help with solving the challenge, whether it's small or big. So what we do when we engage, we offer them the, the, um, a partnership where they can test and we can be a testing ground, a trial for some of their solution where they can learn and take the learning with them when they move forward onto the next stage of development. And we have learned to find part of the solution we're looking for. And, and, and this is the building these capabilities, I think is a, is a, it's a good part, type of partnership we're looking for. And it, this, is, this, is, this is the crux of these things because we, none of us have all the solutions, then it all will be solved. So, just to get a few examples, you know, over the time, we, we now quest for, for data and data collection and digitalization. We developed a, a tool looking at our environmental footprint about the end of fleet energy and efficiency, just to be able to help and support the vessel on what can it do to improve. 
not for us in the office sitting, saying, okay, looking good or bad, just to help them to improve it. It's, it's important that it's there, so it's like, like Mark Cameron said, it's, it's not happening in the office, it's happening on board. We're also spending time and effort on predictive analytics because it's a little bit to help and plan how we want maintenance to be done, how we want dockings to be done, how we want the vessel to kind of, how can we influence and get the best possible utilization? So we use predictive analytics today, developing together with partner, it's okay, how can we better assess the vessels in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the position they are in? Whether it's, it's, a, it's on the voyage, or whether it's leading up to docking. Another part also, we see that in these times of COVID and this, the, we have for quite a while been spending time with two partners to develop remote inspection programs. For us to not have to fly all of superintendents, all of inspectors all around the world to look at the vessel. Can some of this be done? Can it be done to help the crew on doing the maintenance? Can we give them guidance through it? So, and this we can't do alone. So we're spending time with them. And you know, there's another part of how we, how we assess and draw, driven our, our, ourselves is that we see that we need to align internally a common banner. If not, you know, a common, common quest, so to speak. If not, innovation becomes quite fragmented. Uh, and we continue to seek to improve existing functions as a priority. And then we help identify those technologies that can take the next step and the next step. And by that, we lay the groundwork because we also need to develop an organization at the same time to understand what we're doing. So, you know, you need to learn the new trick of the trade and you need to drive the organization with you. It doesn't help to run away with technology when the organization is ready to adopt it. So that's an important part of how we develop our strategy around this. And, and um, this spin-off is that we also, in this looking for possibilities, looking at what kind of technological development is happening. And one thing for sure, being here in Singapore, have access to startups, to innovators, it's a perfect place to be to actually look at what's happening and not be lost in, or not be losing the track of development. You don't have to take all into you and on, but you have to pick and choose which you think suits you best. And as long as we stick within the incremental one and then looking for the disruptive one, I think we are in a, in a, in a spot at least we should be able to solve the immediate problem as we're moving forward and not taking the, the big quantum leaps. So that's where we are on our, on our development and our innovation. Thank you, Paolo. Thank you, Olaf. Thank you for sharing very clear and inspiring. Uh, Stefan, uh, the best digital strategies focus on humans. This is something that has been touched also by, by the other uh, speakers uh, up to now. It is human ingenuity that determines how technology is exploited to affect better human outcomes. But the rise of new also increases uh, the need of uh, specialized skills. Would you like to tell us about your company's approach to the human element in this new digital era? Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Paolo. Good afternoon, um, everyone. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, 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 the human element is critical. If you, if you don't bring the, your people, your customers, your seafarers along for this journey, you know, you're not going to get the buy-in and you're not going to get the, uh, the success that you're looking for from that. And, I, and, I, and I, it's interesting to listen to the others because it's a similar, I, see, I, I hear similar threads um, from everyone. I mean, our approach really, when we started to redevelop our Shipshore digital platform, is we sort of put the technology aside for a while at the beginning, and we focused on the people. Um, so what we did is we, 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 had, uh, we had about 160 of our shore employees, 100 of our sort of sea staff and focus groups from our customers together talking about information. Um, you know, what do they do today? What will they do in the future? 
Um, and, and we actually visited the ships as well. So we visited container ships, boat carriers, cruise ships, and we got a feel for what it was like on board um, in, in both digital information and manual information. So what's the information space they're, they're living in? And, and it's, quite, it's quite interesting. We, we went ourselves, but we also used some uh, external consultants who specialize in this area. And when you sit down with somebody, the first thing they do is they take you and show you your screen. And they say, this is what I do. But actually, you step back from that and you say, well, what do you actually do? So, you, you know, you, you talk to the chief engineer and you say, well, what's that in your top pocket? What's in your notepad that you need to put in your notepad that you don't, you don't have? And why do you then have to take your notepad and put it into a computer? I, I remember sitting with a superintendent and, and um, our digital consultant just looked over at him and the superintendent thought the meeting had finished. And he said, no, I want you to show me what you wrote down in your notepad. Because as information was flowing into him, he was putting information down on, on paper as well. So early on for us, we, we had that human interaction to say, look, we're not going to build you a platform. You're going to build a platform. You're going to, you're going to be participating in, in that, in that uh, what's your information? What do you need? What's your calls to action? And how do we, how do we sort of focus on a, on a sort of value outcome? So that, that was one element of it, um, getting that information up front. Don't dive in and think what people want, build those dashboards or whatever it is. You know, actually, we started very early on um, talking to people before we even cut any software code. And then additionally, and it's very interesting to listen to Mark and, and Olav as well, what we focused on in our scenario was what I call pervasive BI. So our business intelligence is not really built around a big dashboard sitting on the wall telling us our fleet, fleet's health. You know, we have that, but actually BI is built into people's daily operations. So the business intelligence is actually built to tell you what's happening on your ship, what's important, what's the, uh, what can you do to improve your day-to-day -day interaction and, leading, and that leads to improved performance for the organization and for the vessel and for your customers. So, so what, what we actually done is you've got intelligent insights, you've got calls to action, you've got, you've got knowledge management as part of your daily function. So we've integrated our people right into our BI and digitalization program. And, and at the bit early on that we did where we sat down with the people and went on the cruise ship and went on the tanker and, and, and looked at what they did is we had to understand that first. We had to get that human interaction <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> working. And what we end up with, and it's sometimes described as sort of analytics or computing at the edge, what we actually did is we didn't take all that data off the ship and analyze it and then go back and tell them what to do. We actually analyzed that data on the ship so that the, the ship staff, the chief engineer and the captain actually, they have their own dashboard. They have a, a real-time dashboard on board and, and it's telling them what's happening on their ship. It brings all of their information together. So they're, they've gone from, historically, I record stuff, I throw it to the office, they come back, they tell me what to do, to I'm part of that digital ecosystem. You know? And the feedback we're getting from our ship staff is that um, they really like it. You know, we're getting really good feedback. We, we like our dashboards. We like being part of this, this approach. So it's not all about 
you know, shipping data ashore, analyzing, because you can make decisions on the ships very quickly if you give them the right data. And that's sort of our, our approach. And then we do the analysis ashore when we're looking for, for greater insights as well. So I think, I think for me, you know, the, the key is early on, you know, bring your, bring your end users in right at the start of the journey is absolutely critical. Keep them with you through the journey. So don't just take their ideas and come back two years later and say, we think we know what you want. Take them through the journey. And then when you go to implement your solutions, is give them the right training and the coaching to understand the, you know, what are the overall objectives of what you're trying to achieve. And then I think, you know, if you win the hearts and minds of the people, whether they're ashore or at sea, your customers, they're going to help you transform yourself into a data-driven organization. So I think it's, it's a journey for everyone, you know, um, but the great advantage I think we've got is if I go back five years ago, people were still telling me that they, you know, the guys in the ships, you know, they, they struggle to use computers. It's not the case now. They're almost pushing us for technology. So it's a great position to be in, but let's give them the technology to use. So that's, that's sort of how we've, how we've approached it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Very clear. And of course, uh, you, you, you have the possibility really to, to view and, uh, and to discuss and to test uh, all these things with a very large number of, uh, of crews and, uh, and ships. So now let's now move to, to one of the topics of, uh, of the greatest interest for the industry that is about autonomous ships. Autonomous ships, uh, we are asking always ourselves uh, to which degree of autonomy we will reach, for which routes and type of voyages. What do you expect to be the state of the art in the next 10, 20 or 30 years? Uh, this is a question that uh, I want to make to, to, to all of you. And uh, I will start with, with Alex asking uh, again, do you expect to have a huge percentage in the next years? Uh, are there rather fully autonomous or remotely operated? What is your feeling, Alex? Thank you, Paolo. And uh, I just wanted to add one point to, to the first part of the session, but I think it's also a segue to autonomous ships, which is uh, we wouldn't even be sitting here having this panel if connectivity uh, to the vessels hadn't improved as much as it has over the last five years. It's in fact doubled and, and the vessels are always connected and always on. So uh, to that point, talking about autonomous ships, many companies, not many companies, few companies like Kongsberg are doing uh, it, tests and, and all the ingredients are there in terms of uh, sensors and um, sort of the algorithms to assess the data for safe navigation. Commercially, putting a commercial hat on, you know, I tend to think that it's medium to longer term away for commercial vessels. But in terms of a A to B route, a sort of short ferry passage or um, testing it out in terms of how we've seen self-driving cars, I think, yes, in the next two to three years, we will see uh, these vessels operating. So I think the, the ingredients are there um, and it's just gonna be an evolution. I think it's definitely inevitable that it will happen. I don't know, I believe there will be crew on some of the vessels. I find it hard to believe have no crew to monitor the situation, but many, many of the functions will be fully automated. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Stefan. How are you organizing within the group? What is your perception? Is it going to be fully automated vessel, ocean going, remotely operated with less crew? What is your feeling? I think ultimately there's the, you know, we're, we're probably going to get to that, but it's, it's a fairly longer term objective. 
I think at the moment, you know, we probably have the technology now to remotely navigate a vessel. Um, and over the next 10 years, as, as Alex says, we'll, we'll probably explore that more. I think, I think the journey the industry is going to be on is we've got to make the vessels cleaner. We've got to make the fuels cleaner. You know, we, we produce waste, we produce water, we produce lots of different things in those vessels. So the actual, the actual objective really is we're going to build an autonomous vessel you know, it sort of links in a little bit with what we're doing on sulfur cap and, and IMO 2050. As cleaner fuels come in and greater reliability comes in. I mean, and the ship's engine is a quite a reliable piece of kit, but it has a lot of equipment around it to support it and make, and make it become reliable. And that takes people. So the journey really is explore the, explore the autonomous navigation, but then look at how we make the actual engineering side of the vessel much more reliable and, and towards an autonomous future. So I think it will come, but I think it will be driven by other factors as well, such as cleaner fuel. It will mean a new approach to building vessels. So that, that, that's, that's my view on it. Yeah, yes. Mark, Mark O'Neill, um, I'd like to, to have your view and also, again, I'm challenging your lawyer skills. If you foresee any potential implications in shifting somehow responsibility from the ship to, to the so-called control room ashore? Sorry, um, can you hear me all right, Paolo? Yeah, perfect. Um, yeah, autonomous ship, what do we actually mean by autonomous ship? And, and, and uh, you know, these again, in this digital world, we bandy these expressions around. I think uh, most ships are already uh, at a degree of autonomy. When I look at what we can control um, from our performance optimization control room, when I look at the visibility that we have, when I look at the interaction uh, that we have with these ships, we are at a high degree of autonomy or semi-autonomy already. We, we can uh, review passage plans, we can review uh, fuel efficiencies, consumptions, uh, uh, sanctions areas, uh, terrorist areas. We have all sorts of uh, visibility on board and can provide assistance to the vessel. So um, I think there's a huge degree of autonomy now. But the question is, I think, more rel uh, a different one what what actual autonomy do we need and so much of this industry is the the tail wagging the dog we think we need to digitalize so therefore let's digitalize everything because everybody else is doing it or are they uh, what what autonomy do we do we actually need is uh, is an autonomous vessel uh, cheaper no uh, it's not cheaper. It certainly won't be cheaper to construct and the, the same amount of crew will be ashore uh, and on an autonomous vessel uh, than, will be, than will be on board. Is it safer? No. Uh, to be quite honest with you, I'd much rather have uh, my engineers, etc., on board the vessel to deal with any safety issues that arise uh, than, than on shore. Is it more efficient? Uh, probably not. So, you know, what do we actually need autonomous vessels? That should be the question. Uh, and then to what extent and whether it's full autonomy or, 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 or semi-autonomous. As far as um, uh, from a lawyer's perspective, the entire law of the sea is drafted, the international law of the sea is drafted on the basis of, uh, you know, master and crew being on board. And uh, it is going to take years uh, of 
redrafting to to enable autonomous vessels to to safely sail and provide safety for for other users of the sea the international uh, oceans uh, to have that that to have that degree of certainty on 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 the position of law so i think we're a long way legally uh, and and as far as autonomy i agree with one of the last speakers we're, we're pretty much there if we want to be but do we actually need it thank you yeah, you're right Olaf, what is your view? I mean, are we looking in the future to have uh, full autonomous ships like uh, our, our thoughts may be in uh, for short sea voyages like in Scandinavia? Uh, and also, since you have worked there for a long time in classification society, what do you think is the role played by the regulator so far? Um, okay, that's, that's two questions. Let's start with the last one. I think the regulator is going to be, it hasn't really taken on the challenge. I think the the, there is technology out there that you can can implement and get a lot of the features you would like to have. But, you know, it's more driven by the possibility than the need or the cost benefit getting there. So there need to be a driver on it. Um, I think on the short voyages, I think it's a perfect, fine, good solution to, to have uh, autonomous ships. That's, that's, that's perfect. You know, you can catch it up. You can, you can do what you know. But you're going on an ocean voyage, leaving, you know, you, you're coming into. And then and this technology that is about um, take a redundancy. There's one piece of equipment that's not redundant on the ship and that's the main engine. Okay, then we need to be a, a different set of redundancy and prove that it's worthwhile having. So you start talking about looking from a different perspective, but I think the, the, the regulators are, they don't, they don't, they haven't, they haven't taken on what needs to be done because I think around it today, we had a lot of technology that can help us becoming better. On the crew side, on the maintenance, on that issue, but then of course we as an industry need to Implement. We need to have drivers that gives us that gives us the benefit. Huh? You know, there is there is a cost benefit of this. If that is not there, why will we invest in the technology? Yes, the one thing is that the regulators force on, or we are driving by environmental. Um, the regulators are forces to take action on some specific issues. Of course, the environmental, the better fuels and all that. Less uh, on the emission side, which we have to do to to all to get on. That, that will do changes, but will that force autonomous ships? I don't think so. I think it will kind of improve on that level. So moving forward, I, I, I do see that technology, it, there is technology to that that we can implement and drive some of this. The regulators is not on, they're not there to kind of like, what are we going to do with Manning? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do the port calls? And you know, the all, all that kind of stuff. I think there's much more to gain on some of these and actually start looking for autonomous ship. Back to what, what Mark Cameron started with initially, on board this, the, the vessel is becoming a, what kind of an administrative hub for, sending information and receiving information. If we can get rid of all that, we can do things differently. Yeah? If, if things are data transferred, uh, if data is, transfer, um, is um, sent from the vessel to the shore on all the clearances, no paper, anything is digitalized, then we can start taking on some of these technologies. It's a better, it's a better quest, so to speak, to sort that out and to try to drive for autonomous ships in my, in my way, in my, my mind. And I think it's going to be a long time before, or not a long time. I think it's going to drive regulators into this. They need to see a benefit on the regular, from the regulator safety, obviously, as, as part of, of, of their agenda. Environmental, it's part of their agenda. So we need to be a driver in that and actually take that further. Okay. On the, on the biggest, on the biggest scene. That's my view on it. Mark, Mark Cameron, you like to, to add something on this topic? Yeah, it's been a while since anybody's asked me about autonomous ships, um, probably because some of my previous comments, but um, I think it's a red herring. I think the real topic 
for the entire shipping industry is decarbonization, decarbonization, decarbonization. I think as long as we've got reciprocating engines that go up and down and round and round, we're going to need people. Fact. Um, and I think at the end of the day, if you approach it, as many have said from a financial angle, you know, ships operate for 25 years in an extremely harsh environment. If you're going to reduce that down to maybe a 15 year or perhaps even a 10 year life cycle for the asset because of, of equipment changes and because of the reliability of equipment, um, your depreciation cycle is much, much shorter. I think at the end of the day, even if you say at 10 or 15 years, you're going to put all people on, so you're going to need all those systems to be installed anyway up front that you were previously thinking you were getting the advantage of from, from operating them more autonomously. Uh, I've no doubt that change will come, and change will come as a result of the decarbonization uh, strategies and important initiatives that are taking place in that way. As a spin-off from that, we will definitely have more autonomous uh, elements of shipping. Um, but I don't think that it is all that it's cooked up to be. Sensor failures in today's world are, you know, as Stephen was saying, you know, that, that, that equipment is generally pretty reliable. I beg to differ about both main engines and sensors that are associated with them. And Olaf's, Olaf nodding because you know that we have a lot of real problems out there on ships today that don't tell me that we have the reliability that we perhaps think we have. And that's a problem. So I think we're a long way away from, from automated chips to the way that we think we're talking about it. Yeah, I agree. Maybe there is time uh, for one, another question yet. Uh, I would like to, to know very quickly, maybe Mark, Mark O'Neill, you, you could answer on that. If you, if you believe that, uh, like what is happening, for example, in our automotive with the disruption from Uber, if uh, traditional roles in shipping could change in front of this increased transparency brought by digitalization of assets. Could you, could you repeat the start of that question? Sorry, Paolo, I missed that. Yes. If you think traditional roles in shipping, like in particular doing intermediates, intermediators, could change in front of uh, the increased transparency brought by the digitalization? Okay, I'm, I'm still not sure I understand the question, but uh, I, I think I think all of our roles uh, are changing in this business, and and, and of course they have to. And uh, uh, the one important point I would make, though, and 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 we've mentioned the word several times, is that uh, uh, people will remain at the the core of our business for not just the foreseeable future, but for for the uh, for future period. Uh, and, and I think digitalization is is a tool to enhance human performance, not replace it. And I think that's what we've got to remember. Of course, all our roles will change. If, as, as we go down more the autonomous route, there will be more people ashore uh, controlling the very vessels that, that previously were, were on board. Uh, the roles will change. We don't even know some of the names of the roles yet. Um, you know, we're, we're, we've seen a huge in the last three or four months, we've seen huge changes to our to our business models. All of us uh, sitting on on this panel that we never thought would happen. And uh, you know, if we just take working from home as an example, um, how many of our businesses here will now have to have some element of uh, working from home and have to have uh, technology and different roles to enable that uh, going forward? So I think yes, there will be um, very different uh, very different roles and responsibilities going forward. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. And thank you to all of you.
Of course, it was very interesting, and uh, there would be, of course, more and more questions. But so far, what I would suggest is to move to the Capital Link chat for the Q&A session with, uh, with the audience. Thank you again. Thank you, Paolo. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.